Church, you can go and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me this morning to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. And let's bow together for a word of prayer before we dive into God's Word. Lord, we're so thankful for the truth that we've sung about already this morning. Lord, you are a great king. You are clothed in majesty. Um, Holy is our king. And Lord, thankful for what we just sang about, that because of what Christ did, there is now no wrath left for us to face, that through faith we're sheltered in Christ. And so we come before you this morning, Lord, bowing before you in your greatness and clinging to the cross where our Savior died in our place. And so, Lord, we come with grateful hearts. And God, I pray we'd be reminded of all of that as we turn our attention to this psalm now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you're part of our church family, you know that we finished up just a couple of weeks back a study going through the book of Ecclesiastes together. And uh, the plan is somewhere probably in the next couple months, early summer, we're going to start going through Colossians together as a church family. But our pattern over the last couple of years has been that in between our different book studies, we've turned our attention to the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms, of course, is the largest book in the Bible, about 150 chapters, almost 2,500 verses to Psalms. And so because of that, if we, if we approach Psalms like we do most of our studies, if we just started at chapter 1, verse 1, and went all the way to the end, it would take us a very, very, very long time to do it. And so what we've been doing instead is we've been taking the Psalms in little bite-sized pieces. In between our studies, we'll come back to Psalms, we'll study seven or eight of the Psalms together, and then we'll go to the next study. So that's what we're doing. And so let me just kind of reset the table for you to get your mind around what we have with Psalms. There are a couple unique things about the Psalter. First, the Psalms were not written by one author. Now, of course, there's one divine author, God, but there's not one man who wrote the Psalms. David wrote a lot of them. A guy named Asaph wrote a lot of them. Solomon wrote a couple of them. Uh, Moses wrote a Psalm. So lots of different human authors wrote the Psalms. And the Psalms stretch over a very long period of time. The the Psalms cover roughly a thousand year time period. And altogether, the Psalms made up Israel's songbook. And one of the things I think that would strike you if you read the Psalms with that in mind is how varied Israel's songbook was. I I know lots of times we think of the Psalms as just kind of pithy little praise choruses. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And there are Psalms like that, like Psalm 8. But not all the Psalms are like that. You'll remember if you've been here in our other studies that roughly a third of the Psalms are what are known as Psalms of Lament. That means those are Psalms that were written to help us pour out our heart to God in those seasons of life where it's really hard and it feels like we've been tied in knots on the inside. And so the point is that there's a Psalm. If you will work through the Psalms, you will find a Psalm that will help you express your heart to God no matter what you're going through. If you're in the mountaintop or if you're in the valley or anywhere in between, there is a psalm that will help you pray to God and there's a psalm in that that will help you praise God. And that's one of the reasons why the psalms are so helpful. One of the quotes that I've given you a lot of times as we've studied through the psalms is that the psalms not only speak to us, the psalms also speak for us. That's a great line to think about the psalms. God speaks to us in the Psalms. This is inspired scripture. God instructs and reveals and guides and teaches. He does all of that for us in the Psalms. So God speaks to us in the Psalms, but what's unique is the Psalms also speak for us. 
They give us language that we can use in our lives as creatures of God to express our hearts no matter where we find ourselves. And we stopped last time at a well-known, and not, in fact, not just a well-known, but the best known of all the Psalms. We stopped at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was this precious psalm about the way God promises to lead and guide and guard his sheep so that whether you're in green pastures or you're passing through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 reminds us that we have a God who promises to walk with his people. So Psalm 23 sort of looks at the full scope of life and God's promises for all of life. But the psalm we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 24, is different. Psalm 24 is especially written to help us think about approaching God in worship. It's even got a different sort of format to it. There's this sort of um, antiphonal feel where it kind of bounces back and forth. There's a question and then an answer and it kind of bounces back and forth. And you can imagine the people of Israel using this psalm as they would climb the hill toward Jerusalem for worship. They would go to Jerusalem for the different pilgrim festivals and this was likely one of the psalms that they would recite as they climbed their way up to Jerusalem to stand before God in worship. So with all that in mind, let's just read this psalm together. Again, it's Psalm 24 and we'll read it in its entirety. Psalm 24, David writes, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, most scholars think that this was a psalm that David wrote on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being carried into Israel. Do you remember the whole story behind that? Where God had, when they were in the wilderness, God had instructed Israel to build this big wooden box overlaid with gold. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Ten Commandments were put inside of it. The mercy seat sits on top of it. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence with Israel. And so as they looked at the Ark, is this reminder that God is with His people. And everything they did with the Ark was supposed to reflect their reverence for God. But do you remember what happened with Israel? Over time, they started viewing the Ark more like um, a spiritual rabbit's foot. They viewed the Ark like it was just a spiritual good luck charm. So they might be disobeying God in their lives, and they might be dishonoring God in worship. But they thought as long as they had the ark, God would still have to be on their side. So you might remember we're, we're told a story in the early chapters of 1 Samuel about a priest named Eli. 
And Eli is overall a good man, but Eli's problem is he will not correct his sons. And Eli's sons become priests. And it becomes worship gone wild in the tabernacle. They're sleeping with women at the entrance to the tabernacle. They're dishonoring God. They're abusing their positions. So everything is spinning out of control with worship. But hey, they still have the ark. So everything's fine, right? Well, eventually the Philistines invade. And so the men of Israel muster together to march out and fight off the Philistines. And they carry out with them into battle the Ark of the Covenant. As long as we have the Ark, God's on our side, right? And what happens in the battle? Israel is slaughtered on the battlefield. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy of war. And what do they do with it? They carry the Ark back to their capital. They carry it into the temple to their god Dagon. And they put the Ark of the Covenant at the feet of the idol to Dagon. It's a way of saying, our God has conquered Israel's God. But do you remember what happens? Two days in a row, they go home at night and they come back the next morning. And what's occurred? The statue to Dagon has fallen on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the second time, what happens the second time the statue falls over? The hands and the head break off the idol. And then God's judgment begins to fall. Yeah, yeah, the ark symbolizes God's presence. But for those who rebel against God, His presence isn't a blessing. His presence brings a curse with it. And that curse begins to fall on the Philistines. And so they begin to play hot potato with the ark of the covenant. They pass it to the next village and judgment falls. And they pass it to the next village and judgment falls. Until finally they go, we got to get rid of this thing. And so they load it up on a cart with animals. Nobody guides it. They just send it on its way. And the Ark of the Covenant ends up in this little border town in Israel, the village of Kirjath-Jerim. And it stays there for about a year. And then David decides, it's time for us to get the Ark. But initially, David and the Israelites don't treat the Ark any better than the Philistines did. Because God had given very specific instructions on Everything surrounding the ark, how it was to be carried and transported, how they were to deal with it. And Israel ignored all of those instructions. And as they started transporting the ark back to Jerusalem, the cart, it was on teetered. And one of the men walking with it, this guy named Uzzah, reached out his hand to touch the ark as if it was uh, an insignificant thing, as if his hand was more clean or more clean than the dirt in some way. And God strikes him dead. And David just shuts the whole procession down. He just leaves it where it is. Everybody goes home. And for just a few months, that's where the ark stayed. And then David decided, let's try this again. And he and the people of Israel got together. And this time, they followed God's prescription. They approached it as if they were approaching God, the symbol of God's presence. They offered sacrifices. And they began carrying the ark toward Jerusalem. And it turned into this parade, this grand celebration where everybody is rejoicing. It's like God's presence was again going to be with his people. And in the middle of all that, David begins to join everybody else. He takes off his kingly robe. And it was David's way of acknowledging that there, there were not room for two kings in that processional. There was only room for one king. And so David takes off his kingly garb Because they're acknowledging that now God, the true king, is going to enter the royal city. God's people have gathered to worship as the king enters the city. And that seems to be the setting when 
this psalm was written, either for that or about that grand occasion. And you'll notice that there are three clear sections to this. First one's verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 6 is the second part, and then verses 7 through 10 is the final stanza. And so we'll work through these three stanzas. It's filled with questions, so I'm going to label our heading with questions. So here's the first one, first part, number one. First question, whom do we worship? It's a psalm about our worship as God's people. So who exactly is it that we're gathered together to worship? Well, that question gets answered right away in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all who dwell therein. Now in Hebrew, it's actually God's name that comes at the front of that sentence. It says, to Yahweh, to the Lord belongs the earth and all of its fullness. The point is, it's all God's. The earth is God's. And everything in the earth is God's. Every mineral belongs to God. Every ounce of gold and every drop of oil belongs to God. Everything on the earth is God's. Every crop in the field, every shrub, every bush, every blade of grass or weed that's growing in your yard is God's. And every inhabitant is God's. Every insect, every animal, every human being. In other words, there is nothing you can point to on this planet that is not, has not already been claimed as His. The old Abraham Kuyper quote says it, says it well. Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, Mine. That's a good quote. Jesus has looked at everything and He has said, Mine. It's all His. Every square inch is His. Every second is His. And that's a point that the Bible and the Psalms in particular make over and over and over again. I'll give you just a few examples. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Psalm 89 verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness. You have founded them. Here's a couple New Testament examples. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, speaking of Jesus, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Do you get that? So the Old Testament says God made everything, and then the New Testament says Jesus made everything. How can that be? Because Jesus is God. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him, the Him here is Jesus, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and, what's that last phrase? For Him. That means not only was everything created by Jesus, everything was created for Jesus. 
It's all created for His pleasure, for His delight, for His glory. It's all His. That's the point of Psalm 24. You know how five or six hundred years ago, different European empires would send out explorers? And if those explorers happened upon an island or even happened upon a continent that hadn't already been claimed by some other empire, they would go on that island, they would go on that continent, and they would plant their flag. That was their way of saying, this now belongs to us. And that kind of carries forward. If you think forward to the 1800s when there was the big land rush out in Oklahoma, where the U.S. government opened up like two million acres of land that anybody could go claim. And so tens of thousands of people went out and they set up these races where you could go claim a block of land. And what you would do is you would go to that block and you would have a flag that you would plant. Planting your flag is how you claimed it for your own. And that surprisingly still happens sometimes. There was a story just a couple years ago uh, about a Russian submarine that dropped down a titanium capsule with a Russian flag on it, and they dropped it on the ocean floor at the North Pole. And they did that as their way of claiming it. That's their way of saying this, and not only this land, but the minerals underneath this land belong to us. You plant a flag to claim it. Where it's like, it's like David is saying here, that God has already planted his flag on everything in this universe. He's already claimed it. That means you will never put your foot on a piece of real estate that God has not already claimed. You will never breathe in a breath of air. You will never mine a mineral. You'll never eat a morsel of food that God has not already planted his flag on. So David is establishing here who it is we come to worship. We come to worship the God who owns it all. And that's why the Bible starts with those words, right? It's not coincidental that the Bible opens with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is establishing the point from the very beginning that this universe is not self-generated. It, it didn't just automatically appear. This world is here because God made it. And you're here because God made you. And listen, and as your creator, he is also your definer. Do you get that? As the God who created you, he is also the God who defines you. That means he's the one who tells you who you are. And he's the one who tells you what your purpose is. That is absolutely foundational. God is the one who tells us how to understand ourselves and understand our world. If you miss that, you will go through life with your head spinning. God defines everything for us. Those of you who are taking part in our current book club, one of the points that Carl Truman makes lots of times in this book is that we now live in a world where everyone thinks of themselves and the world around them as if it is Play-Doh. And his point is, everyone looks at themselves and the world as if we get to fashion it. No definitions are set. All that matters is what you feel on the inside. That's what's true. The only truth you need is what you feel, and then you're allowed to shape yourself and to reshape the world based on whatever you feel on the inside. So the key concept in our world today is, you are the definer. 
You define who you are and you get to define the world. And you've got to see that is exactly upside down. You, you and I don't get to define ourselves or the world because we weren't the ones who made it. The maker defines us. God is the one who tells us what is true. This is why we're in a world where we're being told that you might have the body of a male, but if you feel on the inside like you're a woman, well then that's what's true and you get to reshape yourself and you should demand that the world be reshaped to fit what is true to you on the inside because the idea is you get to define you and everything and it is a lie. It's a lie. God defines us and our lives only make sense ordered underneath His grand authority. He tells us who we are. He tells us what our purpose is. And if you lose sight of that, you'll miss the whole point of life. And I would add, if you feel inside in a way that doesn't line up with what God has said, well, it's not God who's wrong. And it's not the world that needs to be reshaped. It's, it's those desires that need to be reshaped and repented of. Because if you live your life according to whatever those broken desires are, if you live your life by that, not only are those desires wrong, they're destructive. If you give in to that, that will not lead you to life and joy. It'll lead you to death and misery. It's God who knows this world and God who defines this world. Then look at what he says in verse 2. He expands and says, for he, this is God, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The sea was often seen as a symbol of uh, disorder and chaos. And so the idea here is that we serve a God who brings order out of the chaos. It's taking us back again to Genesis 1 where God separates out the waters from the dry land and the dry land rises out of the waters. God didn't just create, but God created orderly. There's an order to creation. And then David says, and he established it. It's the idea that he holds it together. God created it, God defines it, God orders it, and he holds everything together. So this is not some territorial deity. That's how every nation around Israel thought about the gods. They thought that there was a God for Israel and there's a God for the Ammonites and there's a God for Syria and there's a God of the mountains and there's a God of the plains and there's a God of the sun and there's a God of the moon. And what David is saying here is no, no. Yahweh alone claims his place as God. Everything was made by him. Everything finds its purpose in him. This, remember, this is all about our gathering for worship. And that is the God we gather to worship. So we don't come before this God like he is our equal. We don't come before this God. I don't come to church with my goal being to barter. Lord, I'll come to church today as long as you'll let this work. What do I have to barter with? Nothing belongs to me. I don't come to barter with this God. I come to bow before this God. Here's the second question. Number two, who may worship? Look at verse three now. We entered the second part. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? This is the pressing question now. Because verses 1 and 2 were designed to help us see the greatness and the grandeur of God. We, we sang about it earlier. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. 
We sang about the greatness of God. So who could dare stand before a God like that? I mean, that's the idea when he talks about ascending the hill of God. It's a picture of Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a hill, Mount Zion. Valleys all around, so no matter what direction you approach from, you've got to ascend to get to the tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. So David is painting the picture here of climbing Mount Zion to stand before God in the temple. Who can do that? With a God who is so great and so holy, who can stand before Him? I, I, I can't help reading the ascend language and not think of Moses ascending Mount Sinai to meet with God or what we just saw a few Sunday nights ago or without thinking of Elijah climbing up Mount Horeb to stand before God. I mean, that is an awesome thing. This great God, who could possibly stand before Him? Because verse 3, these questions imply that it's possible. There is someone who can stand before Him. Who? Well, notice the criteria that he lays out. He says in verse 4, here's the answer to the questions in verse 3. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So there's your criteria. So to approach God, you have to have clean hands. Your hands, of course, have to do with your actions, your deeds. And the idea is if I live sinfully, if I live a sinful life. I can't stand before this God. He demands my hands be clean and not just my hands. He makes moral demands of my heart too. My heart has to be pure. Your, your heart has to do with your motives, your desires, your intentions, your thoughts. And my heart has to be pure. So you pull these two together and the idea is to stand before God, to approach this great God, I have to be clean both inwardly and outwardly. Both my deeds and my intentions have to be pure. And that's not surprising. It's not surprising that a holy God would demand that we be holy in order to approach Him. And just in case clean hands and pure heart is a little bit too ambiguous for you, He then explains a little bit. So what's, what's an example of having clean hands? He points us to one example. Here's just one way you could dirty your hands up. You could dirty your hands up by speaking deceitfully. That's just one way you can get dirty hands, by slandering, by lying, by exaggerating, by deceiving. That's one way you can get dirty hands. What about having a pure heart? Well, he explains that a little bit more too by saying you don't lift up your soul to an idol. To, to lift up your soul means to commit yourself. It's, it's the idea of offering yourself up in worship. And so his point is, if I have divided loyalties, I can't, I can't approach God. I can't stand before this holy God. If my affections and my attention is controlled by anything else, I cannot stand before this God in worship. Okay, so just back up and think about what's happening here. So let's say you, you hadn't heard any of this this morning, and your scripture reading this morning brought you to Psalm 24, and you opened up Psalm 24 and you just started reading. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. And you're getting this vision, this picture of this grand, glorious God. And then you read verse 3. Who can ascend the holy hill? And the thought hits you. I need, to, I need to have a right standing before God. How can I have a right standing before God? And then you come to verse 4 and you start working through the criteria. Okay, here's how you can stand before God. You need clean hands. And you think, okay, how clean? Like... 70% clean? 
94%. There's different standards of cleanliness. If when you go home for lunch today, if you send your four-year-old to the bathroom to wash his hands, his standard of cleanliness will likely be different from your standard of cleanliness, which is different from an operating room surgeon's standard of cleanliness. So, so what is God's standard of cleanliness? How clean do my hands have to be? And the answer is 100% clean. My hands have to be as clean as his hands are. Because this is the God who said, Be ye holy as I am holy. Well, that one's pretty intimidating, so I turn to the next criteria. I need a pure heart. Well, that's even worse because as I think about just just what's going on in my heart for the last 72 hours, I want to hide behind the pulpit in shame. I think about all the times just in the last week that, that anger has filled my heart, that selfishness has filled my heart, that deceit has filled my heart, that pride has filled my heart. No, my, my heart is filled with twi- even the good things. Even the good things I do are tainted by impure motives. Even the good things I do. There's something in me that wants to do them so I'll get noticed, so I'll get praised. So that one doesn't look very good either. And then I look, don't speak deceitfully. And I think of the times over the last week I've struggled with my tongue, that I've gotten involved in slander, or maybe I just, I didn't lie, but I just shaded the truth a little bit so that I looked a little bit better in the story than I really should have. And then I think about that last one, don't offer yourself up to an idol. And I think of all the times in my life that I have offered myself up to everything under the sun. I have given myself up for pleasure. I've given myself up for prestige. I've given myself up for praise. I've offered myself wholeheartedly to get approval. I've offered myself to every idol under the sun. So you come to the end of this list and you think, well, there might be somebody out there who can approach God in worship, but it's not me. Yeah, yeah, God might be approached. That might be the point of verse 3. But I sure can't approach him. So the good news is God can be approached. The bad news is none of us meets this criteria. So if you think about these first four verses, this is an unbelievably depressing psalm. God sets a standard for standing before him that none of us meets. God sets up criteria that none of us achieve. So we're all left on the outside looking in. I'm left going, I can't climb the hill. I cannot stand in the holy place. I don't meet this. But here's the good news. What God requires, He also gives. Now, we we don't meet the criteria. And so God graciously met the criteria for us. Our eternal God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he checked every one of those boxes. He lived a life where his hands were perfectly clean. He never sinned. And he lived a life where his heart was perfectly pure. The sole motive and drive every second of Jesus' life was to honor the Father. So he had perfect, joyful fellowship with God the Father. And maybe you think, well, that's great for him, but how does that help me? Well, it helps you because he did it for us. He lived a perfectly righteous life 
to meet the standards of God's law for us. And He not only lived that life for us, He also died the death that we deserve. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, God the Father is treating Jesus as if He was the one with dirty hands. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if all of my twisted motives and sinful desires, they were all put on Jesus' rap sheet. And He took the penalty for every single drop of it. So that now the Bible promises that if you and I will repent of our sins and we will put our trust entirely in Jesus and what He's done for us, God the Father will see us in Him. That means His death is counted as my death. His perfectly righteous life is put on my side of the ledger. If you miss this part of the sermon, you miss everything this morning. So make sure you're hearing me. If you're honest with yourself this morning, every one of us stands before God with filthy hands and ugly hearts. On my best days, I am a miserable sinner. On my best days, my motives are fouled. On my best days, I'm unbelievably selfish. I have a million things in my past that I would give every cent to my name to wipe away. If God would give me a great big eraser and I could walk over the last 46 years of life, I would give everything I had to do it. We have guilt and shame we carry. So how could sinners stand before God? This is how we stand before God, church. We stand before God only in Christ. He, he took my guilt on himself. He met the standard I don't meet so that in him, God sees me as clean. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews says it. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. We can stand before God, he's saying. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us. Through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Get this language. Notice how this seems very similar to Psalm 24. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies, that's our hands, and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you get both sides of that? Our hearts are sprinkled and our bodies are washed all through faith in what Jesus has done for us. We're not acceptable, but He makes us acceptable. So back to the question. So who can ascend the holy hill? Who can stand in the holy place? Listen to me. The answer is, if your faith is in Jesus, you can. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? If your trust is in Jesus, the answer is you. Do you get what good news that is? We in Christ can stand before God and be accepted. And we get hints of all this in verse 5 where he says, "He, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
So pull all that together. So you've got to have him as the God of your salvation. That means you've got to come to the point where you realize you need to be saved. Saved is rescued. That means you see yourself as a sinner who rightfully deserves the judgment of God and you need rescue from that. And so you have turned to God in faith. You've put your faith in the means of salvation God's provided in Jesus. And if that's you, what does the God of salvation give you? He gives righteousness. Vindication. It's a, it's a legal word. The whole New Testament concept of justification is tied up in this word. It means that God looks at you and as judge, he declares you to be righteous. Your hands are not clean on your own, but in Christ, he declares you to be clean. He declares you to be righteous. And you get blessings. You get the blessing of God's presence. And then verse 6, you get to be included in the assembly of people who stand before God and who seek the face of God. And that leads to the third part. Third question, who is the king of glory? So whereas the first six verses focus on us approaching God, these last few verses are about God approaching us. So we now come before God, the God of our salvation, given clean hands and a pure heart. And as we do, God now draws near. How do we respond? Look at, look at how he says it. Read the last few verses, starting in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Do you see how he keeps asking that question? Who is the King of glory? If you've got a bunch of evangelicals in a room and you ask that, who's the King of glory? Who is God? What answer do you think you would get? Well, God is all-loving. God is all-powerful. God is great. And all of that's true. But that's just telling me what God is like. The question is, who is God? It would be like if you went to Ellie, loves me using her in sermon illustrations, so I'll use her real quick. If you went to Ellie, my daughter, after the service and said, who is your dad? And what if she answered by saying, oh, my dad, my dad is 46 years old. You'd go, no, I'm not asking you his age. Who is your dad? And she said, oh, my dad is, uh, he's about 6'1", 220 pounds. No, there's a very specific answer to that question, Right? You're not just asking her what her dad is like. You're saying, who is your dad? And the answer is, Jared Everson is your dad. That's his name. That's the idea here. Who is the king of glory? And you notice how three times he uses the word, the Lord. Look at how he, how he says it. He says, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Skip down a little. The Lord of hosts. And you know, when you see that word LORD in your Old Testament, in all caps, it's a translation of the divine name. It's a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Okay, this is the covenantal name of God. This is how God identified himself. This is the name God gave to Moses. Who is the king of glory? He has a name. 
Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenantal God, the God who met with Israel, the God who gave us his word. He is the king of glory. And then he ends by letting us know that he is not some weak, piddling king. He says he is the Lord of hosts. That means he is the, he is the God who rules over the angelic armies. And he adds, he is mighty in battle. This is a God who fights for his people. This is a God who goes to battle. This is a God who rises to our defense. Listen, I know we're in this world that uh, clutches its pearls at any concept of, of masculine aggression, any concept of a man who rises and fights and defends our world kind of scurries away from. But that's how he's describing God here. This is a God who battles. This is a God who stands. This is a God who fights on behalf of those who are his. I love this quote by Ralph Davis talking about this description. He said, I plead with you not to allow those who only want to speak of a Jesus meek and mild to rob you of the manly, virile comfort of having a God who is mighty in battle. You have no comfort if the King of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if he is your defender in the thick of war. Yes, he is our defender in the thick of war. And so the gates are being told to raise up and the doors are being told to fly open in celebration of the king meeting with his people. And think about what that's saying. If gates and doors, if inanimate objects move in celebration of God coming, how should we respond? Right? That's what this is driving toward. If gates raise and doors fly open, what should those of us who've actually been given clean hands and a pure heart do? I mean, at the very least, shouldn't our heads raise and our hearts raise and our hands raise and our voices raise to worship and welcome in the King of glory? That's, that's the psalm. So it's holding up to us a high view of God. That This is not some piddling God. This is not some God who is our equal. He is great and grand. We tremble before Him and we come before him clinging to a cross where we have the Savior who met the demands for us. And we never come before God, never come before God in worship patting ourselves on the back. We never come before God in worship thinking, he must be so pleased. I had a good week this past week. God must be pleased. God is pleased with me based on what his son has done. God is pleased with me based on the work of Christ. I come before God in worship every day, every week, clinging to Christ. And then we come before God when we see what he's done. We come before hearts, uh, God with hearts that are just exploding in gratitude. We come before God with hearts that are exploding to worship and celebrate the good news that we have a God in Christ who draws near to his people. Isn't that good news? Let's bow together for a word of prayer, church.